Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the municipal election is on Monday. Andrea Horvath is the current front runner for mayor, but will that hold until election day? Connie Smith, former CHCH news anchor, will help us break down the race in its final days. Ottawa has signed a multi-million dollar deal with Nokia, with many speakers at the event touting the apolitical nature of the projects. Are we sure this wasn't just a slap in your face to China? Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor of the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University, has more on that. And we take a look at how the CUPE negotiations are going. Spoiler alert, it's not going well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, it's uh, voting day this coming Monday, October 24th. It's municipal elections right across the province. Uh, where cities, towns, and villages will elect uh, their councils and, uh, well, get right down to it. Uh, and it's a rather unique election uh, here in the Hamilton area uh, because of the number of vacancies. Uh, of course, the mayor is not running for re-election. A number of councillors have stepped aside as well. So uh, anybody that was saying, well, this should be a change election, it's, it's going to be a change election by definition. Anyway, uh, always great to get some analysis about what's going to happen and who's doing what here. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, an old colleague and a dear friend from uh, CHCH days, uh, Connie Smith, former anchor at CHCH News, joins us uh, to give her analysis on this. Connie, first of all, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Hi, Bill. Yes, it has, but it's great to talk to you again. Well, you're busy. I mean, I see the stuff on social media. You're all over the place and doing a bunch of things. So I, I'm glad you got some time to spend with us here today. Uh, and and we'll, we'll, we'll dovetail, by the way, into the Burlington area as well, because there's some interesting stuff going on there. But in, in all the years you've been covering elections, and that's been a, quite a few of them over the years, I, I don't remember an opportunity where there's the, the potential for as much change as we're going to see here in Hamilton in this election. Absolutely, Bill. And uh, traditionally, uh, election campaigns can become a little tedious, a little boring sometimes when there isn't a whole lot of, of um, options. And uh, yes, I think this is the most change we've looked at in, since the amalgamation back in uh, 2000 with, with all the new vacancies. And um, whether it's municipal, federal or provincial, it's so much fun to look at the different dynamics at work. And we have so many different dynamics in this particular election, especially with the mayoralty race, that it's really going to be an exciting night. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too. We'll focus in on that in just a couple of seconds. But uh, the, the change element here, I think, is, mm -hmm. is fascinating, especially because, as, as you and I found out, of course, when you start covering these elections, municipal elections in particular, there is a huge, huge advantage for the incumbent in just about every election. It doesn't matter what town or city you're talking about. Right, right. So... I'm sure the incumbents feel very safe, but when there's so much change in the air and so many other seats up for grabs, what, there's six um, uh, councillor, new councillors, plus yeah. mayor, who will be all new faces, there is that uh, momentum of change that I think adds some electricity to the air for, for voters, and I think engages voters much more. And I know there was a letter to the editor a week or so ago, Bill, and it it criticized um, a politician, a local politician, for saying, well, I was elected by a majority. And this letter to the editor said, well, how can you say it's a majority when there's only, what, a 37% turnout? Well, uh, whose problem is that? That's the voters. 
that person yeah. was elected by a majority of those who voted. So I think this this feeling of change, this momentum is really going to, I'm hoping, increase the voter turnout. I know the advanced polls show um, an, an increase in numbers. So hopefully that will really engage more voters. What, does that follow form follow function in a situation like that? Uh, you're right. The numbers for the advanced poll on Hamilton were surprisingly large. Uh, but does that mean that there's going to be a large turnout on Monday too, or is that just people that decided I want to get this over with so I can do something else? Uh, absolutely, I'm, I'm sure there's a combination of factors leading to that uh, turnout number. But you know, 20% undecided, and that's why nothing really matters, as they say. The only, the only poll that counts is election night. And yeah. right now, that 20%, what are they thinking? Do they want to go with um, total wholesale change? Do they want a woman for mayor? Do they want? all brand new um are they going to go with so many of the main issues are social issues we're talking about lack of housing and homelessness and and health care throughout you know the pandemic which is still affecting our communities so are we torn because of party politics it should not really be a factor in municipal politics but they are right in a kind of covert kind of way so there's just so many nuances in this election um old guard new guard Bertina has uh, recognition from his former mayoralty days and his former broadcasting days. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? There's just so many dynamics that that big 20% unknown have to work through. And maybe they're just waiting. Maybe they just haven't decided publicly throughout polls and whatnot. But maybe they do know what they're going to do. And really, no one knows until they get into that election booth, right? Well, and some people I know don't make their choice until they actually get in there. <laughs> they're at the polling station and they say, oh, okay, I guess this one. And, we'll see and what they may say something that. in the polls and then totally change their mind, go 180 degrees when they get inside the, the polling booth. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting election and it's going to keep everybody who's covering that election very busy keeping tabs of the numbers. And they're going to, they're going to change throughout the night. And I, I can just foresee some big numbers coming in for some incumbents, some big numbers coming in uh, in the mayoralty, for instance. But then Kanan Loomis, he's got He's young, he's new, um, he's got the, the business followers, small business is growing, entrepreneurship, as we know, is growing in Hamilton. So there's such change going on within the dynamics of the city that really it's going to be quite an interesting night. Well, I think this is, yeah, you're right. This is, I mean, every election is important, but, yes. uh, but you know, we're coming out of the pandemic and, and trying to get back on our feet economically. And there's so many things that were going right for this city before the pandemic and the shutdowns. You talked about the entrepreneurial spirit and startups and, and that there was a lot of that going on. And I know you, you've talked about that and some of the work that you've been doing now and some of these very innovative people that are just driven to say, I'm going to make a difference. And it all got, you know, we all hit the, the, the hold button, the pause button for about two and a half years. And uh, we're going to need some leadership here, and not just from the mayor, but from the other people on council. Uh, so that's going to be fascinating to see. But the fact is, there's, I know every time I do this, people are going to get upset. I get emails all the time. But there isn't a major issue. There isn't a polarizing issue like there have been in past elections. You know, do you Absolutely. want LRT or don't you? Uh, yeah. Do you want a football stadium or don't you? Do you want to build the expressway or don't you? 
not to say there aren't major issues. Sure, there are, but you know that they, they all have their own place. But is the absence of a, a major issue like that going to be a factor in the voter turnout? Do you think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and, and I think that explains the undecided vote as well. Everyone's kind of all in agreement. Yes, we have to do something about homelessness. We have to do something about housing. We have to do something about safe streets. Everyone's agreeing with each other, so there is no wedge issue at all, really, of the main issues that people seem to be really emotionally connected to. So I think in a situation like this, it really comes down to the individual, their personalities, their integrity, um, how they are as as individuals, their values are. I think civility is something we're craving for, as a, to return to politics again when we see what's happening south of the border and to agree with some of the populist movements around the world. We want civility again, and I think a lot of voters. We've already had two elections to go through. Are people tired of voting or are they tired about negative politicking? So I think that is a big factor. And I think people are really going to be looking at individual candidates and obviously where they stand on the issues. But when the issues are so, so much in agreement to so many, it really comes down to the individual's likability. Well, let's talk about that. And, and we've talked about polls for a couple of minutes here, Connie. What, what's your read on, on how effective or how important they are? I mean, you know, the latest one that um, came out, we've talked about it on the program, uh, has Andrew Horvath ahead, uh, Keenan Loomis in second place, and, and Bob Bertina uh, third, uh, a fair ways back. But uh, and, and there have been variations on that theme with the other polling that's been done. And I've talked to some of the candidates who I guess are doing their own polling, and it pretty much reflects the same way. Is that going to have an, an impact on people deciding which candidate to back now that we're into the short strokes of this campaign? I think it has a huge impact, and I really don't know how I feel about polling for that reason. Some people just want to back a winner. So if they see, well, you know, it's between these two and this candidate is kind of slipped in the polls, well, you know, forget him kind of thing or her. So I think it does have an impact, and I'm not sure if it's a positive impact, to be quite honest with you, because people who are so undecided Again, that whole desire to go with the winner. Or maybe you want to go with the dark horse. So I really think it does have a, uh, an impact. And yes, it's great for talk shows like this because we can follow the campaign and see how it's impacting voters as a snapshot kind of thing of the sentiment of, of um, voters in a particular moment. But can it have that negative effect as well as further polarizing uh, how someone would vote because maybe they don't want to be seen as, as backing the wrong person? So who knows for sure? Um, I, I think it's good for, for us to know what's going on and, and make predictions. But I, I do wonder myself um, the value of polls. When it comes well, to and there's yeah, voters. some question about the efficacy of them too. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, we we know a, a forty percent voter turnout in a municipal election is considered to be a really good thing. I mean, wow, it was that high, which I think that's embarrassing, frankly, uh, because as I've talked about in the past, I mean, all elections are important, of course, but municipal elections uh, we're electing the people that have the most direct impact on our families. You know, our property Absolutely. taxes. Uh, you know, who picks up the garbage when they do it? Who clears the snow? Uh, safe streets, all these issues. That's that's all in the purview of local governments. You'd think that people would pay attention to this and say, I got to have my say in this and I got to vote. But 40%, which basically means six out of 10 people that you're talking to aren't going to vote. 
I mean, they may say, yeah, I want so-and-so to be the mayor, but they're probably not going to vote at all. So, and you don't know which six of those 10 people are not going to vote. So you just have to assume that everybody's going to, but that's not simply the case, which I guess leads to that old thing, you know, it's this, you got to get the vote out. It's one thing for somebody at the door to say, I'm going to support you, Connie. I think you'd make a great mayor. Uh, you're not running, by the way, until next. I got it, but but if, if if you were, but that doesn't mean they're going to get out and vote. You know, they may wake up on Monday morning and say, oh, "It's cold, it's raining, I don't feel like it." Um, you know, I, I want to stay home and watch Murdoch Mysteries instead. And so you just don't know until voting day, really. I think there's two factors that could really change voter turnout uh, in the future. I spent a lot of time in Australia because my husband, David, is yeah. from Australia. And, of course, you ha you have to vote. You're fine if you don't vote. And talking to some uh, local politicians the other night, I think it was at the Seniors Awards, it's like, well, who's going to campaign on that? But if it's your civic duty to vote, and if we start educating young people on the importance of voting in primary school, in grade school, so that it becomes an engaged part of their lives, that's where you're going to organically get an increase in voter turnout. So you can either force it, and I don't even like to say the word force, it's a privilege in this country to be able to have a say in the kind of government you want when you look at what's happening around the world it's a privilege it shouldn't be considered a forced a mandated the evil word mandated thing to do but if that was part of what we knew we were going to do growing up as a young person it would engage us we would follow the news we would follow the the campaigns and we would have a much different society i think in the future or nobody would say, well, you're, you're only elected on 25 or 30% of the population, and you call that elected by the majority. I think there are ways we can really, in the future, you know, increase that voter turnout substantially, Bill. Well, one of the things I wanted to see happen, and we just don't seem to want to have that debate here in Hamilton anyway, is is the way in which we vote. Um, you know, we have to go to the polls. I know there's advanced polling. I get that. But uh, I spent a lot of time up in Blue Mountain, of course, uh, you know, a fair place up there. And uh, you can vote by mail there. You can vote by phone in those elections. And, of course, you can go to the polling station or the advanced polls if you want. If you make it more accessible and easier for people to vote, I think you'd see more people getting engaged in it. Um, and, and we just don't seem to want to have that discussion. It's the same as, as every time somebody brings up about, okay, we're going to change the way we elect people here. We're not going to do first past the post anymore. It's going to be, uh, you know, one of the other methodologies, uh, you know. And and as soon as we get down to, okay, are we going to try that? No. Nah. Now let's uh, just leave the way it is. So we complain about the system, uh, but we don't do a whole lot to try to improve the system. And that's frustrating. It's frustrating, but. I don't know. I've always valued that actual physical trip to the poll as part of the experience, as part of the experience of doing my duty and being um, allowed and permitted to, to have a say. Obviously, yes, um, ease of voting would, would play a part. But again, if we could engage the electorate at, a, at an earlier age to really take pride in this, that I think that wouldn't be quite the issue down the road. Because there's always help to get people to the polls. Yes, it's great if, if the advanced polls help a lot. But why don't all the people that know they can't vote election day, why don't they get out of the advanced polls? And there's so many organizations that help people with mobility issues to get there. I just think we have to rethink how we sell the act of voting for our elected representatives. 
You mentioned uh, the municipal election back in 2000. That was the amalgamation election. That was that was a pretty ugly time uh, because it was imposed on, on us by the provincial government, of course, and it was quite a change. And there there was initially an us versus them, the uh, the old city, you know, the, the, the first eight wards, and then there were the outlying areas. Uh, I'd like to think that here we are 22 years later and we're, we're over that, but we're not. Uh, there's still a, a, a taste of that there. And I guess the issue that... Uh, maybe a uniting issue for an awful lot of people voting is going to be area rating. In other words, you pay for the services you get, uh, as opposed to something like policing or fire. We, you know, it's just that you're, you're taxed. Everybody pays the, basically the same rate. Uh, there are people on council that want to get rid of that. Uh, and the outlying areas, the Ancasters, the Dundas, the Stony Creeks, et cetera, are saying, hell no, don't do that. I, I'm wondering how that's going to impact voters, and, and especially for the mayor's race, because uh, we've had a couple of the candidates seem to backtrack on that issue. They initially said, here's how I feel about it, and now they, I'm sure they got pushback from some of the outlying wards of saying we're not going to do this. But it's going to be one of these big issues that this council is probably going to have to deal with. It is, and, and I'm hearing the same thing where um, candidates would say, um, no, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of that. I'm in favor of making services better. So yeah. instead of saying, well, we're going to, you know, scrap area rating, we'll go across the board, but we're going to increase services to the outlying areas. Like how feasible that is, how practical that is in the short term, who knows how that would be. But I, I know it's been discussed a lot about the fact that a lot of people don't understand area rating and I think there's got to be a lot more education uh, for the community to really understand what area rating is all about and how it impacts them but this council I mean LRT yes or no has gone away we're going forward with LRT but the arguments aren't over and Bill this goes back to when I was covering council in the 1980s LRT, I remember seeing the drawings and that was put aside and put aside just like the Red Hill Valley and the link. And of course, it ends up costing so many times more when it finally does come to fruition. And the whole transit thing to me is like the future is coming. The future is here. The bulldozers coming at you, you've got two choices. You can either wave your arms and try to stop it or jump on board and be part of the change. So that's how I see the whole transit thing. and But it, it's going to be phased in and step by step. And there's going to be a lot of speed bumps along the way, for sure. And that will probably be a very major issue that the new council will have to deal with. Well, I, I got about a minute left here. I got to ask you, uh, there are three main contenders for the mayor's job. I know there's a number of people running, but it's basically, as you mentioned, down uh, to Bob Bertina, Andrea Harvath, and, and Keenan Loomis. Do you see a blowout happening on Monday, or do you see this is a very tight race? I think it's going to be fairly tight. Um, Sheila Pops, of course, has endorsed Andrea. There's so many buckets at play here. There's the bucket of people that want uh, the first Hamilton female mayor. Uh, there's the NDP crowd. There's... Um, there's the people who want a new face, who want Keenan, the business bucket. So um, Keenan has momentum. That's been alluded to in the most recent poll. Andrea's still at eight points ahead. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think it's going to be blowout. I think it's going to be back and forth. I, I wish in a way Keenan had run for a council seat. And I think his future is going to be very bright in, in municipal politics. Andrea may well win, but I think Keenan will do well. And I, I think it'll be a very exciting night, and I think it'll be back and forth, Bill. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be down at City Hall, of course, as we always are during these elections and uh, talking to some of the winners and the losers as well. And I'd love to get your input in it, too. I'm sure we'll talk again on Monday about this. But thanks for this today, Connie. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. And hey, Hamilton has a history of strong women in politics. And um, I remember Ellen Fairclough interviewing yeah. her when she couldn't get her book published. But anyway, I think there's a lot of strong history. And maybe it is time, Bill. We'll see you Monday night. <laughs> is that a prediction? Uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't hold you to money. it. I won't okay, mon on it. Monday I'll hold you to it, but not today. We've got a few days to wiggle around on this one. Thanks, Connie. We'll talk again soon. Connie Smith, a former anchor, of course, for CHH News, uh, who's covered a lot of these municipal elections in the past. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting uh, announcement the other day uh, from the federal government, as a matter of fact. Uh, the uh, uh, Trudeau government has now signed a multi-million dollar deal with Nokia to uh, start building things right here in Canada. Uh, 26 acre facility uh, right near the uh, city of Ottawa, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it was interesting to have so many dignitaries there for the. It's a good news story, to be sure, and um, including the CEO, uh, Pekka Lundmark from uh, Nokia, who insisted uh, through all the, the joyous comments that were being made that uh, this isn't. We're not political players here. We're just looking for good business opportunities. But. Make no mistake about it, there were political overtones to this announcement. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, Robert, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Let's, I want to talk about, I know the business side of this, and that's important. We'll probably touch on that in just a couple of seconds here. But there are political overtones. I mean, one of the, the great news story here is that this is a great deal for Nokia. It's a great deal for Canada and economic development. But the undertone here is Nokia is not China. And and, and that seems to be, if, if not the main reason for doing that, but certainly a very important reason as far as the Canadian government is concerned. Yeah, and I think anyone who's been to the Ottawa airport in the last uh, couple of years and pre-pandemic, uh, just when you're waiting for your bags to show up on the carousel, you you couldn't help but notice the Huawei ads that were all over the airport. I mean, it was it was a cheeky uh, reminder that uh, that China was very interested in having their presence within within Canada within telecommunications, and of course, from the the controversy with with the Huawei uh, executive uh, that was detained in in Vancouver. Since then, things have soured significantly. And I think that uh, we've seen efforts by the Canadian government to try to find ways to reposition that relationship to say that uh, technology and investment opportunities that were sought in China between 2010 and, and 2018, 2019, uh, they're not being sought as the same way. There, there's going to be new partners and new markets as opposed to dealing with with mainland China. And right now, we're we're seeing this uh, this warming relationship with. Nokia, which again is a, a Finnish-based uh, company, but there could be new actors coming into the equation as well. And particularly, it'd be very interesting to see if there are any technology firms in Taiwan that start to get more of a, a nod in the future. And again, that would be something that would certainly uh, displease the, the Chinese officials who have traditionally counted on a Canadian market for their goods. 
And it falls into line with uh, something that Christy Freeland, who's the finance minister, but also the deputy prime minister, has been talking about. Uh, she was at a, an economic conference in Washington a little while ago, and she's made this similar speech uh, in other locations as well, basically saying, look, at coming out of this, we are, we're all trying to get our economies back together again. But she's talking about what she calls friendshoring. In other words, let's start doing business with our allies and our friendly nations uh, and and not necessarily exclude the bad guys, but do as little as we can with them. The bad guys being China and Russia, of course. And mm-hmm. and and this falls right into line with this. Now, the, the, Prime Minister Trudeau has not talked about this in the same context, but Christy Freeland's not doing this freelancing. I mean, there's obviously a change in government policy here, isn't there? It, it really is. And I think there's something that, again, is beyond just the, the, the wireless communication and cellular phone uh, market that, that's going on here. I mean... Uh, we've seen just how much of a demand there is for for mobile phones and the reasons for them to to continue to improve and and rely on technology that's made in China is something we can we can chat about but i think that that point about shoring up the friends is something that canada has a bit of a sour taste in its mouth from trying to uh partner with with chinese firms during the pandemic and to this i'm specifically thinking about what all fell to pieces with the vaccine development that China mm-hmm. had uh, partnered up with Canada in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and in fact, using um, uh, intellectual property and research here at Dalhousie University, was that was supposed to go with a lab in China to develop one of the first uh, the first vaccines. Now, what came from that is that once the, the recipes went over to China for mass production, China said, well, we're not going to export it. We're not going to give it back. So you can't have it. Uh, wound up that vaccine wasn't too good in the first place. However, uh, that left a lot of sour notes to, to say that this is not the sort of environment that uh, that, can- that Canada should rely on for these sort of international partnerships. Meanwhile, uh, it also explains why Canada was sort of last in line to get a hold of the European uh, produced vaccines as well. And I think that's really part of it is that we're going to see uh, Canada's outward foreign relations to try to warm up to to markets that can be trusted and not have to rely on uh, jumping over some of the red tape that would have traditionally been done uh, trying to partner with some countries in, in the EU, for example. So I think that's the bigger context here is that there's been a burn by the Canadian government from China just once too many and now it's time to to shore up new partners and actually if that means readjusting uh, you know, production lines and even access to certain products. I think we're going to start seeing that. Well, and more importantly, uh, and again, this is uh, pertaining to Christy Freeland's uh, speech and seemingly her theme of these days, it's going to take money to do this. I mean, there was a, a huge financial commitment by the federal government and the provincial government here in Ontario, by the way, uh, to get these guys to come over here. And, and she talked about that. She says it's going to cost us. There's going to be a return on that investment. But we got to get over this idea that uh, that well, that's corporate warfare, welfare. These guys have got to get off on their own. Uh, other countries are doing that. If you have to write a check to get them over here, so be it. That seems to be the attitude now. Yeah, and you're seeing that south of the border as well. Uh, oh with, yeah, with with the U.S., there's a lot of shoring shoring the business back and starting to to make the products, especially with automobiles, back in in the states. And you know, one of the things that we've seen with with mobile phones, just as, a, as an example here is that they continue to sort of get better and better each each uh, you know release of a Samsung or an Apple or whatever it is it's always improving on the last product and the cost of those products don't always go up uh, as much as we think that they should they you know there has been inflation 
to these products, but part of it has been relying on those really cheap production uh, lines from from China in particular. And while those are now compromised, we're going to see that uh, the ability to upgrade technology through other means might actually really increase the the, the cost of, of pocket-based technology of cell phones, for example, unless other countries start stepping up and saying, yeah, we'll welcome those uh, those upstream production facilities. And I think Vietnam right now is, is getting big into that, where they're, they're welcoming a lot of US-based uh, uh, products that are that we had required mainland China to, to produce them are now relocating into Vietnam. So we're starting to see like the geopolitical pieces starting to switch here. And, and we're seeing that China's more and more going to be left in the cold uh, from that massive export market of those upstream items, everything from, you know, irons and, and calculators to, to advanced technology for cell phones. Other markets are going to pick that up. So, but as you say, Bill, like when you are dealing with uh, the, the issues of trying to bring jobs and bring infrastructure into, into Canada, where there is an expectation of uh, social benefits and high wages, money at the beginning of that process is going to be necessary to get those business deals going. And, and that's just the new reality, because I, I know there are politicians, some of them who actually campaign on this idea that no, not a nickel goes to these companies. Uh, if you know, if, if it's going to be good for them, they'll know that already and they'll come. Well, that doesn't happen. They're going other places uh, because they're offering some incentives. And I, I think a lot of us are going to be glad that Canada is finally getting into the game here. Uh, and and as we mentioned, it's not money down the drain because the, this is a, a huge enterprise and a very very reliable company that's uh, that's going to it's going to be job creation and as you say the technology. I mean, we've talked time and time again that we have some of the highest cell phone rates in, in the world in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need more players. We need more competition here. And uh, and this seems to be the uh, the idea that, uh, that this is the first start in this. And I'm anticipating there's going to be a lot more of this. And, and the, the rationale, as you mentioned, is basically, look, at, we spend so much money and time uh, with China, and they're not reliable. Every time that they, we do something they don't like, sanctions, economic sanctions, or they arrest some of our people, what, whatever, uh, I don't know. I guess we can't really turn our back on China at this stage. I mean, because they are emerging as probably you know soon to be the number one economy in the world. But by the same token, we can't rely on them for the essentials because they're just not reliable enough. And I think that's the key word: is rely. Uh, there, there's, there's a difference between rely and engage. And yeah. and when we are reliant upon a foreign market that does not share political values or political history and has a very different scope on issues like human rights and about uh, environmental conditions and you name it, the, the difference is there. If we begin to rely on those foreign so-called partners abroad, it really puts any government, if it's if it's liberal or conservative uh, or, or any of the other parties, if they were to get power, in a real bind because that economic driver is going to be one that's based on on values that, that don't always line up. So, you know, in terms of engagement, where you can still do business with, with people around the world, but not be so crucially dependent upon it, is something we might see more as a strategy uh, from Canada going forward. Just in the simple fact that we've We've had so many resources. Natural resources has always been the driver within the Canadian economy going back to the, to the 19th century. And there's always been the history of sending the resources abroad, letting it be produced cheaper. And then we, you know, 
purchase the refined product, often at uh, costs that are beyond what uh, they really should be. So things from you know the e-vehicle market and now maybe to cell phones and who knows what else is going to come down, there could be more of those streamlined uh, processes put in place from resources to final production to product that are going to be more domesticated. And it's something that uh, you know, if we rolled the clock back build of like 2005, no economist in the world would have said that anything could start binding down on on, on globalization. But uh, I think we're starting to see that. I think we're starting to see that national markets and national production within those markets are going to become more important going forward. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what the next steps are going to be. Uh, as always, thank you so much for the time today, Robert. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks so much. Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish uh, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The mediation process that uh, was going on between uh, CUPE unions, these are the education workers, not the teachers, but the, the workers, the other people in the school, uh, education assistants and, uh, and staff, etc., cetera, uh, have broken off with the government. Uh, and uh, I don't know where this is going to go. There's a strike deadline been set, and uh, it looks like it's going to get really ugly. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Colin DeMello. Colin, of course, is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, Colin, great to have you with us. Thanks for the time today. Thank you for having me, Bill. Let me ask you, Colin, you've been doing this for a long time and covering these sorts of negotiations. Given the intransigence that's on both sides here by the education minister and, and by the union, I, I got to guess you're not surprised by this latest development. Well, to put it in the, the terms that the union did yesterday, they said, listen, they need to build pressure at the bargaining table. And the one way to build pressure is to threaten to walk off the job. And they said at this point, they're not really seeing that pressure paying off at the bargaining table, which is why, uh, you know, they're really kind of ratcheting up some of their comments about the potential of going on strike on November the 3rd. Um, the, the two sides are really far apart. And, and QP is one of those outlier unions in which they typically will negotiate with the government first. They typically will come up with a contract, uh, you know, quite early on, much to the chagrin sometimes of the other education uh, sector unions. And they really haven't, you know, participated in job action for a, a very long time. I believe the last time they did was in the early 2000s. But they're also saying their wages are way too low. They're not keeping up with inflation. People are, you know, basically being driven to food banks. And so they're saying they're really entrenched in their position that they want an 11% a year increase over the life of the contract. And the government is saying, no, that's way too expensive. They're only offering them, you know, over the life of the contract, uh, about an 8% a year increase, or sorry, 8% increase over the term of the contract. So these two sides are incredibly far apart. And it seems more likely now than it has been in a while that this union might actually walk off the job. But there's more going on here than just, you know, we want to get a fair deal for workers, etc. This is a battleground, really, as you've been reporting, Colin, uh, because there are a lot of unions, not just this CUPE union, but others that were very upset with the government's policy about putting a wage ceiling on, on salaries uh, over the last term. Now, you know, that's to expire. We get that. But it, it kind of, it, it, this is like, okay, here's the government position. We're not budging on this. That's the policy we're using, and you like it or lump it. And the union is basically fighting this, I guess, for the other unions, because as you mentioned, there's, there's going to be more contract coming up uh, with other people that have been affected by the government policy. And they want, they want this union to make a stand on this, to set a standard, I guess. And the government doesn't seem to want to budge on it. 
No, the government does not want to budge on this, and they don't want to budge on Bill 124 either. And to that yeah. point, I mean, we've spoken to union after union after union. I'll give you one example. Uh, a few weeks ago, the government had announced in Pickering that they were going to extend the life of the uh, Pickering nuclear power plant. And they were standing in front of a bunch of workers. You know, they were talking to the uh, talking about them, praising them about how uh, you know, hard they work, how intelligent they have to be to do the work of running a Pickering nuclear power plant. And we later learned that these workers were grumbling behind the scenes about the fact that they are also subject to Bill 124. And they are also subject to these caps, these bargaining caps of 1% every year for their contracts. And so every single union has had the same approach here where they feel slighted by the government. They feel disrespected by the government, they say, uh, because of this uh, wage capping legislation. And so for QP, I mean, you know, one could look at this as, yeah, maybe it's a canary in the coal mine. Maybe they're the ones who are you know, taking a stand against the government. Uh, but I mean, this is their time to negotiate. And, and it seems like the government, uh, they were already under the 1%. That contract has expired. They had 1% for three years for the last mm -hmm. uh, three years of their contract. Now it's the next one. And we're, what we're seeing from the government is they're not prepared to be more generous than the 1%. Right? They offered for any union ma member making less than $40,000 a year, they'll get 2% additional every single year. Anyone making more than $40,000, they're offering them 1.25% additional every single year. So you know, compared to Bill 124, you're getting an extra 0.25%. I don't know if a lot of union members would be happy with that. And I, I guess that's why QP is so determined here to really make an example out of this situation and the government. Yeah, I, I got to figure that, you know, behind the scenes here, the, these other union leaders, including the folks at Pickering, I'm sure, are saying, look, it's stay strong. Uh, you got to do this because we're next at the table whenever that contract comes up, which is going to be soon. I know there's a number of them that are going to expire this year. So we've got this situation. And, and again, to your point, uh, Stephen Lecce, the education minister, doesn't seem to want to budge on this. But, uh, I mean, he's got an AC can play here. He's, he's got back-to-work legislation in his back pocket. And I, I, he sounds as if he's willing to do, use that. I had a very interesting conversation with the education minister yesterday. So we'd heard not long after the government was elected, uh, we'd been told by a lot of conservative sources that, you know, the government was contemplating some kind of legislation. Uh, it could have been essential service legislation or something to that effect. But the government has kind of changed its mind a couple of times. Yesterday, though, I asked the education minister, so what happens if they actually go on strike? And he said, if they continue on this path, he said, the government will act to ensure that students stay in the classroom. So he doesn't want any kind of disruption, any interruption to what students are doing in, in, in Ontario schools. So what does that mean? That they have a few options on the table here that they could exercise. One, you know, they could figure out some kind of legislation to prevent a strike. Not sure what that would look like exactly if they don't want to make them essential service workers. Number two, they could impose a contract. You remember Kathleen Wynne did that very yeah. controversially, impose contracts on education unions. And number three, if they go on strike, if they do a work to rule, they could very quickly uh, table legislation uh, and pass it to force them back to work. All of these things, though, will have consequences, right? In some cases, it sends it to binding arbitration, which means the, the union might end up getting more. Unions typically win out a little bit more in binding arbitration. So there is a, a huge political calculation here for the Ford government, which is why they really are making a pitch to parents, right? 
We've been out of class. We've had disruptions during the pandemic for the last two years. That's their spin. You, like Parents don't want an interruption in the classroom. Therefore, unions shouldn't take us there. So we're going to see this war of words ratcheting up over the next couple of weeks before we get to that November 3rd deadline. But you know, at this point, the government has something prepared. They're just not telling us exactly what they're prepared to do. Well, we're watching a game of political poker right now. We'll be uh, watching for your reporting on it, too. Very, very interesting times. Thanks, Colin. Really appreciate it today. Thank you for having me. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. And you can check out the latest course on Global News at uh, 530 and 6 on uh, Global TV. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.